Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for braving this weather. I usually know what the weather's going to be like the following day when I go to bed, but for some reason last night I just went to sleep and I woke up this morning and I'm like, oh. <laughs> so my whole morning was spent clearing snow. I'm sure yours, a lot of the time was occupied that way as well. And uh, they didn't get to the roads very well in most places. So I, I just thank you for pushing through all that because I think it matters that we're together when we worship as much as we are able. If you're joining us from the live stream, thank you for being with us as well. I know it's the commitment even to just sign on at 10 a.m. and join us. So we just want to acknowledge you and thank you for making that choice. This morning, I want to finish up a series that I started last year. Uh, I had one more message, and then the holidays hit. The timing worked out such that I, I had some other things that I felt like needed to be said from the pulpit. But with this message, I want to bring the Follow Jesus series to a close. And the, the title of the message is Carrying Our Cross. It's a, it's a uh, reminder that when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to follow him all the way to the cross. And that is probably one of the hardest things to really grasp and embrace in the journey of following Jesus. Before I launch into the message, though, I want you to watch a short video clip. You might have seen it once on TV already, but I just want you to watch this and then pay attention to how it makes you feel. Wow. I'm 54, way past the age of eligibility to enlist, but... I watch stuff like that, and it kind of gets me going. And, and what I like about that ad is it evokes something in me, even with that last question about what kind of person I want to be. When I hear chaos, when I see tyranny, when I see people in distress, and obviously I'm glad they showed those trucks loaded with aid boxes because responding is not just going with guns and shooting people. A lot of times it's just bringing the aid that's needed. And... That's the kind of ad they use to recruit young men and women for the United States military. I don't know how you personally feel about the military today. I can talk about anything that seems generally neutral, and it'll divide a room in half everywhere in America. That's just the way it is. So I recognize that for some of you, I should have probably given you a trigger warning. You're going to see images of the military. However you feel about the military, here's the thing and the reason why I showed that video. Because when you really think about what military service entails, it's ridiculous that any young person in America would voluntarily sign up for that life. I think U.S. military recruiters might be the most effective salespeople alive. If you run a sales department and you're looking for a new hire, go down to the recruitment depot, find that person, go, you want to make some money? Because that person's getting young people to sign away the freedom. You know, the truth about those kinds of ads is that that is a part of it. The glory, the sense of purpose, the camaraderie, it's all a part of life in the military. But what they don't really tell you, what they scale back quite a bit in recruitment conversations, is the full truth. It's not that it's untruth. It's just not the full truth about what life in the military, especially in the early stages, is like. This week, I spent some time walking through the shoes of a U.S. Marine Corps recruit who arrives in Paris Island, South Carolina, for their first 
exposure to the U.S. Marine Corps. You don't just become a Marine by signing up. You become a Marine after you survive and pass through the training, and then they tell you at the end of it, it's your honor to now be called a U.S. Marine. From the moment you arrive, you arrive at night in a bus, and there are these yellow footprints painted all over, just in ranks, and at least a million other recruits have stood on those very footprints before you. And from the minute you get off the bus, it's just constant yelling and chaos. You do not sleep one wink that first night. It is running the second you hit the ground. You give up all your possessions, including your hair. I mean, it's the first thing they cut it all off. And you also have to surrender everything, including, and this is why I can't believe young people are still saying, they take your cell phone for 13 weeks. That alone, if they just said that right off the front, <laughs> that would be, there'd be no U.S. military left, I think. Then they wake you up at 4 a.m. every single day for 13 weeks, and they run you so hard that you are dead asleep by 8 p.m. and thankful to be in bed. This is every single day. This is the part that I think would also get me, maybe you too. I mean, all the showers are communal, but because they've had serious issues with self-harm, all the toilet stalls have doors removed, so you don't get privacy in the bathroom for 13 weeks of your life either. There is nothing you have that you get to keep with you. Everything you need will be provided to you by Uncle Sam, including your underwear, which you will surrender the day that you arrive. I watch videos of these recruits making their phone call home just to say we arrived safely, and they're yelling in your ear so that the loved ones at home can barely hear what you're saying, and you recite a short two or three sentence message, and you hang up the phone. I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> just hang up. I just, the whole thing, I'm like, how does anybody sign up for this voluntarily? And yet, thousands and thousands and thousands do. The glory of, and by the way, the whole time, and you got to understand, the whole time at boot camp, they are yelling nonstop at the top of their lungs, and what they're trying to do is create unsettlement and a sense of chaos to simulate the total disruption of a battle environment. Because in combat, there is no calm whatsoever, and you still have to be able to function. So if you survive all that, at the end of it, you get to recruit and be called a U.S. Marine, and it's a huge huge accomplishment. Many of us know someone who has personally gone through that. It, at the end of it, you meet them, they are a changed person. Somewhere deep inside, something has shifted inside of them. But I wonder how many would get to this point if the full truth of the cost of it, the experience, were told up front. And I think that's what makes a skilled recruiter, is you major on the glory and you dampen the message of the high cost. Because otherwise, why would anyone buy it? If you sell something that's expensive, you rarely put the price up front. You put all the features of what you're getting. This is going to be so awesome. You're going to really enjoy it. That's how Peloton stays in business. It's just a bike with a TV, but good Lord, they make you want one. Every time we see the commercial, I'm like, honey, do we need a Peloton? And it's always, no. But it gets me every single time. In this sense, then, I think Jesus is the anti-recruiter. Because even when people come up to him volunteering to follow, he does his best to scare them away. He never shields them from the high cost right up front. This is what it's going to be like, and it is not going to be a picnic. 
And if you're going to follow me, it's better you know that up front. In Luke chapter 9, at the end of that, that chapter, while Jesus is walking around with his disciples teaching people, a number of men as a group approach Jesus, and what they're saying to him is, listen, we're really moved by what you just taught us. We want to follow you. So what comes next? Now, as a church leader, that's a dream come true. I think there isn't a Christian leader alive who wouldn't consider it a blessing to have people unsolicited come up to them and say, how can I get involved? I want to follow Jesus. I want to serve in some way. What do I need to do? Jesus hears this, and his response to these men, one after the other, is really surprising to me. Almost shocking, even some would say offensive. And I've questioned, why does Jesus do it this way? And I think in part, it's because Jesus knows the difference between impulse and intent. Lots of really good but short-lived endeavors begin with an impulse. You see your friend's Instagram posting of her working out. You're like, dang it, I got to work out. And you really, you buy all of the gear. You buy all this tight spandex clothing. You sign up for a gym membership. And maybe you go like three times before you realize, I hate working out. Who does this? Lots of things begin well with impulse. And they fizzle because the hardness of it destroys our intent. That's why to finish anything is a huge accomplishment in this world because impulse is easy, intent is incredibly hard. And Jesus knows this, and he knows not only that he would be annoyed by it, but that the person, they lose something of themselves each time they follow an impulse and they end up quitting along the way. It doesn't just disappoint others, it scoops out something within us every time that happens because we stop believing in ourselves. We stop trusting ourselves each time that happens. It deflates us. It discourages us. And Jesus, knowing this, says, if you're going to follow me, that's really great. Your life will be different. But make no mistake, this is not going to be an easy journey or one without cost. You know, this first man comes up to him and says, listen, I will follow you anywhere. Have you ever felt that way about a great teacher or some celebrity? You're like, wherever you're going, I'm going too. I felt that way about good bosses. I felt that way about good conference speakers. I'm like, I might leave my church and attend your church. This is awesome. Jesus hears this and says, okay, let me tell you where we're going. I don't have a house. Even animals have places to live. If you follow me, we're going to be homeless. Are you ready for that? Second man comes up and says, I'm going to follow you, but first, let me go and bury my father. Totally legitimate request. And Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Number three, third guy comes up and says, I will follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These are really hard teachings. They run counter to the popular image of Jesus that floats around in our culture that Jesus is just all rainbows and unicorns and lovey-dovey. That Jesus is the soft side of God and Paul is like the hard side of God. These are hard things to swallow from a Jesus we generally associate 
with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And that's because this is not inconsistent with those things, but he is being very merciful in saying it this way. He's not saying to these men, I don't want you, and it's certainly not a condemnation of home ownership or the love of our families. Jesus himself often taught about how huge a responsibility we have as God's people to care for our families and our loved ones. We learn to love in the kingdom of God by learning to love in the home. So that's an important thing. This is not a denial of any of those things. It's not even saying that their protests, their, their, the things they asked about were bad things. They weren't immoral, legitimate priorities. But sometimes in the course of following Jesus, even legitimate priorities must take a back seat to following Jesus. This is a hard teaching. And I've wrestled through it all week because I don't want to do a disservice to what Jesus himself is saying, but I see how easy it would be to misunderstand or be put off by what we're hearing. Really what Jesus is saying is, you're about to start the journey and something has stirred you. You're about to begin. Your first thought should not be on the other competing commitments. I get that those things are important, but right now at this moment, the most important thing you have to keep in mind is if you're going to finish this journey you're about to start, I have to be the very first priority for the whole of your life. Because if that's not settled at the beginning of the journey, then every other legitimate love will slowly draw you away one step at a time from this Jesus you've begun to follow. I think love of family is incredibly important to the heart of God. I think providing a home is incredibly important to the heart of God. The very first act he did for human beings before he even made them was to build them a beautiful home. God is not looking for people who want disruption and instability and poverty and pain. That is not what he's after. But he's looking for people who are willing to bear those things because they have found in Jesus and his kingdom a treasure worth bearing any burden and enduring any loss because they see glory in what he is about. And they see worthiness in him. And they are, their hearts are led to love him with everything that they have. In the passage for this morning, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus makes a really bold statement about what it means for him to be first in our lives. And he says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know if you're doing a Bible reading program, but if you're doing the the, um, New Testament reading plan with Harvest, you read this a few days ago. I don't know how quickly you glossed over those verses, but that verse started to gnaw away at me deeply. I'd read it so many times, but I think this year it really grabbed hold and I began to understand how crazy the kingdom of Jesus really is. He begins by tackling one of the most sacred and instinctive loves in the human experience. It's a love that you don't have to be religious to understand. Anybody who is 
emotionally and psychologically healthy, has an instinctual love for their family. It's a sign of disease when we don't have regard for our parents or our children unless they have done something egregious to erode that trust and love. It's one of those things that is sacred to each of us. And even when it goes wrong, it hurts more than any other pain because the love between parents and children is so sacred and important to the formation of a human being. If you had a good relationship with your parents or if you have a good relationship with your children, you know you count it as one of the greatest blessings in your whole life that that's what you have. And if you had a really hard relationship with your parents or your children, you know that it's on your mind and it affects your life nearly every single waking moment of the day. That's how important this love is. And yet Jesus tackles that most sacred, fundamental love. And he says, this love which you feel so naturally, which without any instruction rises to the top of your priorities, even that love must come second to loving me. This isn't just a power play by an insecure God. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you got to love me more than everybody. It's not that kind of emotional plea saying, I feel really bad when you don't love me more. This is not a contest of affections. But here's what he's saying. In the course of following me on the things that I'm going to lead you to do, there will come times, rare as they are, they will be hard. There will come times when saying yes to Jesus will compel you to say no to your family. We will do everything in our power not to let those things come to a head. And I think that's wisdom, to try not to create those false uh, dilemmas where you have to choose one or the other. Life shouldn't be one series of Sophie's choice after another where you've got to sacrifice a loved one. That's not a healthy way to live. But once in a while, when you are following Jesus very legitimately, he will look right at you and say, if you're going to say yes to me here, It will force you to have to say no to other people that you love. That's not hard to understand because in every love relationship, we understand that's where we know where we stand with them, is will you ever say yes to me and no to someone else? That's how I know that your claim to love me is more than a sentiment. It's real is because to say yes to me, you've had to say no to other things and other people that matter to you. It's more than just um, what you love more. It's why you love them, why you're willing to give up all of that. This love for Jesus is about what we're willing to give up to lay hold of something greater than what we're sacrificing. A couple years ago, I shared this story with you. I want to revisit it in case you've forgotten which is likely because sometimes I talk to people right after service and they already forgot the message. So it's possible that even if you heard it two years ago, this is me new to you. Back in June of 2001, I took a trip to Korea with a bunch of other English ministry Korean-American pastors. We decided to visit the motherland to see what we could learn about spirituality there. And most of the trip was a terrible discouragement to me, if I'm being honest. I did not like what I saw of the Christian faith in my motherland, But there was one part of that trip that left a permanent mark on my spirit. And that was my visit to the Yang Hua Jin Foreigner's Cemetery. 
How many of you know anything about the spiritual history of, the, of Korea, South Korea? Okay. So one of the stories, though, is, that's very important is that there were a series of missionaries that came from Great Britain and the United States, particularly from the Methodist and from the Presbyterian movements. That gave up so much to bring the gospel to my ancestors. My grandmother on my father's side is a direct beneficiary of the ministry and the sacrifice of these men and women. As I walk through the cemetery, and it's a little weird that there's a whole separate cemetery for foreigners, as if they didn't want to bury foreigners and Koreans in the same ground. That, That offended me a little. I got over it after a bit. And I'm just walking through this foreigner cemetery, and there's a whole section of the missionaries who in the earliest years came to Korea, encountered cholera, and were buried there. Grave after grave, 83 missionaries who gave up their lives bringing the gospel to the country where I was born. What really touched my heart was when I came upon this nondescript section of 38 tombs, 38 graves. These were the children of the missionaries. Many of them born, contracted disease nearly upon their birth. Many of them died in infancy so that all that's listed on the gravestone is the last name and the word infant. Most of those children who passed away on Korean soil were younger than four years old. And it wasn't like they all arrived together. One family would go, and they would arrive by boat, by ship. They would go through this terrible loss, sometimes an entire family decimated. Letters and telegrams would go back to the state saying, we're so sorry to inform you that this team has passed away. And another team would come to take their spot. And another and another, and I could not fathom how any family, knowing what had befallen those who went before, would still go with their children and do this. If you are outside the faith, I totally understand why you would regard this as cruel and irresponsible. I get that. If I had no inkling of the reality of the gospel of Jesus, if I had no faith that his kingdom will last forever, I would say that was the dumbest, most reckless thing a person could do. And that's why he's talking this way, is because if you really see this kingdom and you really believe this message and this concept of a life that comes after this one, if you really believe it, one of the implications is going to be that at some point when the the stirring of the living God calls you to say yes to him, it will mean saying no to some of the things I want to give and to spare my family from. My personal faith is rooted in the sacrifice of those men and women. And I remember being moved to tears in that cemetery thinking, I don't even know who these people were. I felt so irresponsible for not knowing more of the spiritual history of South Korea when that was directly related to why I know Jesus today. And the more I learned about it, the more it stirred my heart. I am a Christian today because some people who came before me counted the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus worth more even than their lives. And had they not, I'm not sure that my rabbit farmer of a grandmother would ever have come across a white person who told her about this living Christ and heard in it such truth she forfeited everything else she believed for all her life 
and decided to follow Jesus and raise two and then three generations to love the Lord the way that she did. Jesus then calls us not only to love him above every other love, but to manifest that love through the carrying of our cross. What's interesting is in Luke 9.23, Jesus, and by the way, this is before, just before those three men approached him to follow, he had given this invitation very clearly to all those who heard. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. On that occasion, he gave this teaching as an invitation, a recruitment conversation. If you want to follow me, here are the terms. But what's interesting is in Matthew 10, he now gives it again, but in the form of an evaluation, not an invitation. This is no longer an invitation. This is speaking to those who have already started the journey, maybe on impulse, maybe on intent. But he's saying to them, if you're really with me, look deep in your hearts because this is the evaluation of those who follow. Whoever does not, in some translations, the force of this in the Greek is, whoever will not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Man. If I had a whiteout to erase all the inconvenient phrases in Scripture that offend people, that's one of them I would cross out. Not worthy of me. Man, that's... It feels like a really hard way to say it. And yet Jesus doesn't flinch. He's given the clear invitation. If you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow, here are the terms. This is what is involved. Every day, deny yourself. Pick up your own cross and come follow me. And if you are not doing that, his simple evaluation is, you are not my follower after all. I think one of the reasons that it's so hard for people to hear the message of Christians is because the lives of Christians don't always reflect that message. You know, when we talk about a hardship or an annoyance in our lives, like maybe, um, I I used to, you know, if you have a difficult roommate, let's say, that's my cross to bear. This roommate of mine, I have a cross to bear. Maybe it's a physical issue, like my bad knee or my poor eyesight. Uh, I have this issue where uh, I can't see anything near me without doing this before the old glasses. So I'm like, it's my cross to bear. These eyes of mine are... And we talk about a cross to bear like we're talking about an annoyance I have to live with that I can't change. I get how we use it in common slang, but the cross that Jesus refers to It's much more serious than a bad roommate and poor eyesight. The cross of Jesus is a symbol not of hardship, but of worship. It's not just about how painful, how sacrificial, how costly it was. It's about how much you have to worship a God to pick up that cross in the first place. How much it's a statement of his worth and our devotion to him, not just how tough you are, how much you're willing to to swallow or to bear for your cause. It's how much you love the God of this kingdom. I think most of us 
There are crosses we bear willingly every day. And I don't want to diminish those at all. Most of us in this room right now have something we are carrying willingly because we love and obey the living God. Things that are not easy, that other people would not bear with, we bear with them all the time. And I commend you for that. That is a sign of the spiritual life in us. The more I meditated on this all week, not about your lives, about my own life, here's what I came to recognize. That in every season of our lives, there are many crosses we willingly carry, but the truth, the depth of our discipleship is often seen in that secret cross which I won't carry. I hold up these other crosses willingly carried and say, look, I'm doing lots, but there's that secret cross to forgive that person who I cannot forgive, to make that decision which will cost my loved ones too much. And I won't do it. I know God wants me to. My confusion is not what is right. My confusion is how I could possibly cross that threshold. It's too much. I won't do it. And I found that in every season of my life, I had secret crosses, which I struggled to bear. And so I vocally, visibly held up the other crosses I am bearing. I have a very convenient position as a pastor. I could always pull that card. I go, look, hey. I'm in ministry. I used to be able to claim a vow of poverty, but you guys treat us so well, I can't even claim that anymore. So I just go, there's a lot I can't do because I'm a minister. The truth is, even though I once picked up that cross very willingly, there's still crosses that I hide behind my back. And I'm not making it sound like each sacrifice, each commitment is an individual cross. All those together are the cross I'm willing to bear. The cross we carry is not so much about what we're willing to put up with, but why we would carry it at all and why we would not. That's the real battle of the heart. Who calls you to carry crosses? And for whom and for what love would you ever pick it up? Most of us who are in midlife have come to a place in our lives professionally and financially where we really don't have to carry much that we don't choose to. I'm in very much that same place. I don't mean to say it's just you guys. Like, I can afford to say yes and no to the things that suit me in most of my life. But there's still these things God throws in front of me that ask the question, are you still with me, David Lee? I know back in 1992, you said yes to something, a big something. But are you still saying yes today? Are you really still with me? And he says to his followers who have already started the journey, if you will not pick up your cross... You are not worthy of me. That feels like a hard way to say it. So maybe an analogy will help a little bit. It's not a perfect analogy. But I wrestle with hearing those words from the the mouth of Jesus. You are not worthy of me. It sounds so much like you are beneath me. Here's maybe a different way to think about it. Because I have two daughters. What if my daughter 
was crazy about a young man. She just said, oh, he is, this is how old I am, he's the bee's knees. <laughs> man, am I old. Young people are like, what do bee's knees have to do with it? I didn't even know bee's had knees. He is just the greatest thing ever, and she's constantly fretting, I'm not pretty enough, he's not going to like me anymore. And it's almost as if she's obsessed with whether she is worthy of him. But as her daddy, I don't care about that. All I'm thinking is, is he worthy of her? So I begin to ask her some questions. Well, why don't you go out on a date? Oh, yeah, we were supposed to go out last night. Why didn't you? Oh, uh, he was tired, so he chose to take a nap instead. And I guess he didn't set his alarm. He didn't show up. Well, why don't you ask him to take you out tonight? Have him come over to the house, pick you up. Uh, actually, he doesn't like picking me up because he has a new car and he hates putting miles on it. Well, okay, if he's not going to drive, at least make sure he pays for dinner. Yeah, about that. He would accept that he's saving up for a PS5, so he hates spending money. And I'm hearing this as daddy, and, and what's the question I'm asking? It's not, girl, are you worthy of him? Is this young man worthy of my daughter? I'm not saying because he hasn't paid money. I'm not selling her. But the choices that she is describing tell me that this young man, at least at this point in his life, takes care of himself first and everyone else second. I would be hard-pressed to say that he is worthy of my daughter because he likes her more than he likes himself. None of his choices would tell me that's the case. And if I see my precious girl giving her heart to a boy who loves himself more than he loves her, I would declare, even as a fallen human being, he is not worthy of you. It's not that he didn't pay the price. It's that he doesn't actually love you as much as his words would indicate. Maybe in all his texts, he's sending you emojis with lovey eyes, hearts for eyeballs, That is so easy and cheap, but his love is not proven in his words or his text messages. They are proven in his choices, and his choices say that he loves himself far more than he loves you. I think this is at the heart of what Jesus is saying. It is very small a thing to claim a love for God. It is a very heavy thing to live that love out truly. And when he says, you are not worthy of me, what he's saying is, I will and I have given up everything to be with you. But if you love yourself more than you love me and my kingdom, I cannot have you on this journey with me because you're not really with me after all. Most of the time when I preach at Harvest, my main goal is to try to encourage and instruct. And I hope that I'm not deviating too much from that. But once in a while, the Word of God simply presents us with a hard truth. We spend a lot of time wondering if God is worthy of us. Why would I follow this God? What has He done for me? How is He revealing Himself for me? I get why we ask those questions. But today, I'm asking you to ask the question, are you worthy of Him? Is the way that you have loved and followed this Jesus worthy of him? Does it reflect more love for yourself, more love for your family, 
or more love for the God who saved you? Let me end this way, because we have one more thing we want to do before we wrap up today. I recently was watching YouTube, uh, a video of this speaker, and he was a conservative speaker making a speech at a very liberal, very prestigious university. So it was a delicious setup. It was going to be like lots of tension, lots of awkwardness. I don't know why I like watching stuff like that. And in this video, this young white male student very respectfully, very articulately made an impassioned plea about white privilege and its evils. And whatever you feel about the politics of this, that's not my point. He made a really strong case for this being a real issue, especially at that particular college. He said, it is happening here too. That people of color, people without advantage, people who are overlooked by the system of intrinsic bias, systemic injustice, are being turned away in favor of others who have privilege. The speaker went back and forth a little bit with him, but at the end he goes, okay, suppose, because you've made a good case, suppose I accept your argument, and it's true. Here's the bottom line truth of it. Will you then, as a twofold beneficiary of this illicit privilege, step down from your matriculated spot at this prestigious university and give up your seat in your classes to a student of color who was otherwise overlooked or turned away, even though they were worthy? I'm not here to debate the politics of systemic injustice. That's the last thing I feel like doing right now because it's never a real conversation. Here's why I'm bringing up that story. Because I saw in that man's dilemma, that young man's dilemma, the crux of the matter for the kingdom of God as well. He truly believed in what he was arguing for and that it was evil and that it was bad and that many good people had lost Access through this system. But when it really came down to it, he said, and the speaker challenged him, will you be generous with everyone else's spot at the school or, or will you be generous with your own? Should the next white student be passed over for someone else or can it be you? That's a bit of an unfair thing to do to a young kid at a talk, but I thought that's the kingdom of God too. That it is so easy to have an impassioned opinion about a wrong. It is so hard to be a part of the solution if it will cost me everything. I deeply admire those who have risked everything to be a part of the solution. Whether it's the mistreatment of women, whether it's racial inequality, whether it's whatever, some people do put it all on the line. They risk everything, and they begin movements of change. Often, they are lost to history, and their own lives didn't find resolution or justice, but their sacrifice led to an entire national outrage that changes things. And I'm reminded again that that's how the world has always changed. It has never changed because of hashtag activism or angry opinions. It has always changed because at some point someone believed this enough to put their own stuff on the line. To actually decide, I'm not going to sacrifice everyone else's stuff. I'm going to sacrifice mine. This is how real this has become to me. I will. I'll do something more than be outraged. I will do something that might cost me everything. 
The reason Jesus talks about loving him more than our families, the reason he talks about being willing to pick up a cross is not just some power play, it's not just to see how serious we are, because he knows that this kingdom of his will not be built in this broken world cheaply or easily. It will not be a kingdom built by opinions and ideas. In the end, it's a kingdom he established with blood and sacrifice because he obeyed and loved his Father in heaven. And he loved us deeply. This is a kingdom built on a foundation of an image called the cross, which is a symbol of huge sacrifice, devotion, commitment, worship. It is a love of God and of others above love for self. And if that's the way that this Jesus began his kingdom, the only way it's going to advance is through the men and women who are willing to pick up that same cross of their own and carry this eternal, beautiful kingdom forward into a world that doesn't want it. There is no other way that this kingdom is going to get built in this world. I believe this message has a great deal to do with why the church is losing its voice in our country every day. Even as the church shouts louder, our message is growing dimmer and dimmer. The world no longer needs to see people who wear crosses on pendants around our neck. And if you are, don't hide it. That's, I'm, that's awesome. Wear it. But the cross doesn't belong only here. It's got to be on our shoulders. And I'm not just saying this to you. I've got my own cross to bear. And I find in my flesh, I'm fighting it. And I'm praying that Lord Jesus would reveal himself to all of us as worthy of every sacrifice which he legitimately calls us to bear. Let me finish this way. This young woman, her name is Ruby Rachel Kendrick. And I stood in front of her grave for a particularly long time. She died of appendicitis in Korea at age 25. She was in the middle of a five-year stint as a short-term missionary. Back in those days, five years of short-term. <laughs> five days is short-term now. But um, she was there. I mean, she got appendicitis. Medicine wasn't what it used to be, well, what it is today. And um, she died. But as she was dying, her last words spoken and recorded where if I had a thousand lives, Korea should have them all. If I were in her shoes, I wonder if my last words wouldn't have been, if I were in Plano, Texas, where I'm from, I wouldn't be dying from appendicitis. But here in this backwater country, where they don't have Western medicine, I can't believe this is killing me. She said, if I had it to do a thousand times, I'd come here again a thousand times because the Lord Jesus called her. And her willingness to take up her cross is directly rooted to why I know Jesus today. And that blows my mind. And I think how this faith is still around today because of men and women like her who did not hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 38. Take them lightly. 
but heard what he said. Will we be such serious men and women? I want to invite you just to pause for a minute with me. Because this has been a heavy message. And if you hear it as coming from me, it won't have any force. Hear it from the heart of your Savior. He's saying this to us. Will you carry your cross? Will you love this Jesus more than you love even the human beings closest to your heart? If we did that, I think the world would recognize what an insane and powerful and glorious kingdom has come upon the world. So I'll give you just a minute and I'll have you respond to the Lord in this moment. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.